Uh, for the most part, I am going to read the remarks that I have prepared. Uh, that way, I will stay on track with my ideas far better than just meandering. Okay, so if we will. On April the 4th, 1966, and my friend Vanna White here will uh, be holding up uh, the... Uh, holding up signs for us along the way here. She'll, move, she'll work the crowd, too. But, okay. On April 4th, 1966, Brian O'Doherty began work on what over the course of the next year and a half would become his 16-part portrait of Marcel Duchamp. Three are boxes where the kinetic portrayal of Duchamp's heartbeat is uh, represented. They are accompanied by associated studies and drawings of uh, possessing uh, the, the portrait itself, possessing Janus-like uh, qualities, acknowledges O'Doherty's of affection and respect for Duchamp, while at the same time it serves as a critical analysis of the position that the artist had assumed, especially its effects on the art world and artists, personal as well as a more, in a more global sense by the middle of the 1960s. Events leading O'Doherty to undertake this portrait are important to telling the work's story. By the mid-1960s, tumultuous events, the arrival of pop art, minimalism, conceptualism, among the directions that the art, art would take within New York's art world were leading to the unseating of Clement Greenberg and the hegemony of his critical theory. In its place, was a clamorous cacophony, a frenetic pattern of dissonance that emerged with often overlapping and competing attitudes and practices regarding arts function, production, and reception. Conceptualists counted among that number and Brian O'Doherty among the conceptualists. The boundaries were drawn. Greenberg's Feldgeist had effectively cordoned off access to art world to those alien to his inner circle. Visibility or invisibility for artists, critics, and curators depended upon their relationship with either acceptance or denial in Greenberg's inner circle. To subscribe often meant the loss of the self, becoming members in a disciplined army at Greenberg's command. As Greenberg's castles of sand began to crumble in the 1960s, Duchamp's began to rise. His reputation revived by a series of important publications and exhibitions dating from the late 1950s and into the mid-1960s. Against the backdrop of the arrogant and aggressive Greenberg, the seemingly benign Duchamp, who advocated an erasure of questions regarding boundary and quality, the diametric opposite of Greenberg's position, presented a welcome opening for those previously excluded. Observing Duchamp's ascendancy, O'Doherty, who admired him, wrote in 1965 that the artist's career had been totally confirmed and that by the end of the century he would be counted amongst its most important figures. However, not addressed in that essay was something else observed by O'Doherty something very disturbing to him. He saw a new generation of artists losing themselves to Duchamp, becoming what he would label Duchampettes. Contributing to the problem was the many, that many of the emerging attitudes and practices 
were seen to have historical roots in Duchamp, including those of the conceptualists. How could one distinguish oneself from this specter and not fall under Duchamp's shadow uh, became a serious question for Odority. The situation was clear. Abandon yourself or defend yourself. As he put it, using a chess metaphor, I was very clear-headed that to be influenced by Duchamp was to lose your queen. Wanting no part of this loss of self, Odority acted through the making of the portrait of Marcel Duchamp, its standing as a clarion call against the hazards of submission to Duchamp, the loss of one's queen, the loss of one's identity. Not only did he have to defend his queen, employing a combination of offensive and defensive strategy, he had to capture his opponent. Two incidents appear to have helped give shape to the solution, taking Duchamp's portrait in the form of appropriating his heartbeat. One was Duchamp's statement about the lifespan of a work of art, and quoting from Duchamp on this, so I applied this rule to all artworks, and they, after 20 years, are finished. Their life is over. They survive all right because they are part of art history, and art history is not art. I don't believe in preserving I think, as I said, that a work of art dies. It's a thing of contemporary life. In other words, it's being made at the same time as you are alive, and it has all the requisites of a work of art, which is to make, and your contemporaries are making works of art. They are works of art at the time you live, but once you are dead, they die too. Odority questioned why did he say that? Did he really believe it? How about his own artifacts? And artifacts they are. Their artistic quality often negligible, but they shine in the light of converging ideas and mythology. Odority was determined to refute Duchamp's statement. The other was born out of Thomas B. Hess's vicious attack masked by a thinly disguised veil of neutrality on Duchamp. In an essay, Je accuse Marcel Duchamp, published in the February 1965 issue of Art News, Hess opined that Duchamp disastrously had confused art with life. He tried to turn himself into a masterpiece, Hess said, and through his example, he has been a corrupter of youth. A third component wants to be considered as well, and that is Odority's training as a medical doctor, which precedes his ultimate career choice as artist, critic, and arts administrator. Insights into the marriage in his mind of mutual exchanges between art and science were revealed in a lecture entitled The Politics and Aesthetics of Heart Transplants, given, uh, given at the University College in Dublin Medical Society three years after the completion of the of the portrait series. In that talk, O'Doherty observed, and I quote, perhaps we can identify the interaction of the mechanical and the organic in modernist art as an extended and recurring comment on the location of consciousness, the lability of, uh, the lability, excuse me, of identity, and a debate on or anticipation of its loss. 
Wanting to refute Duchamp and disagreeing with Hess, the basic ingredients for Odoherty's building his defense against the loss of his queen were falling into place. If Hess believed that Duchamp uh, turning himself into a work of art and Duchamp thought that works of art died with the artist, O'Doherty only needed to transform Duchamp into a work of art. One through his control could make Duchamp live indefinitely. It now was a question of means. A portrait seemed a good possibility. Portrait painters and photographers had long been recognized for their potential at capturing the subject's identity and being. Following the long tradition of portraiture, providing an image of Duchamp's physical features was not the answer. O'Doherty had to try something else. At that time, he was giving much thought to body parts. Informed by his training as a medical doctor, as well as his interest in French symbolists, poets, and writers, posing himself the question, what do body parts stand for? Areas of inquiry including issues of identity, the location of sentience, and questions of consciousness. If a body part was to stand for Duchamp, which body part? The human heart had long been thought to be our most important organ. Morphed into a symbol referring to the, to the spiritual, emotional, and moral, and at, at one time the intellectual core of a human being as the seat of the human mind, the human heart has from ancient mythology to contemporary literature been granted a privileged position, ruling over the ritual of human existence. In recent decades, with advancements in medical practice and technology, the locus of control over the heart has shifted from the metaphysical realm to the physical. The timetable of one's life can be altered, extended, and through practices of modern medicine supported by a vast range of technologies. Displacing the order of natural selection with outcomes informed by scientific technological intervention. To control one's heart was believed and is still held in some circles to control one's existence. Odority could portray Duchamp using his heartbeat. When on April 4, 1966, Dr. Brian O'Doherty began work on his 16-part portrait of Marcel Duchamp, transforming and transplanting his subject's heartbeat into a series of still and kinetic images. He knew exactly what he was looking for, and that something was turning Duchamp's heartbeat into a work of art, a living heartbeat, mechanomorphed and boxed, a heartbeat that would continue indefinitely. Like the fictitious Edison in Il Adam's Eve of the Future Eden, whose android Hadley was re replaced, the real Alicia Clary, O'Doherty had to fashion his android, his replacement for Duchamp. It, having it assume his identity, the feeling of his being, and a sense of consciousness. It would serve as a means for his taking control of Duchamp. He could defend his position as a conceptualist and not lose his queen. He would have Duchamp alive and in his hands, refuting the artist's claim that his works would die with him. Knowing the risks, and I quote from Brian, 
If you're going to play with the big boys, you have to play for keeps. O'Doherty set out to take Duchamp's portrait. That evening on April the 4th, Marcel and Tini Duchamp were uh, dinner guests at the home of Brian and his wife, Barbara Novak. Barbara, with the guidance of her Julia Childs, mastering the art of French cooking. I had to give you a moment in this too, Barbara. (laughs) Uh, Planned and prepared the meal. Brian planned and prepared something else, recalling that after dinner, he asked Duchamp to come into the bedroom where he attached him to an electrocardiograph machine rented for the occasion. And I quote from Brian, he lay still, clearly unperturbed. The machine unfurled its long ribbon, and here we see the uncut strip from the electrocardiogram. Okay. And it documented, uh, the machine unfurled its long rhythm. I switched from lead to lead. Everything worked perfectly. The needle was steady, the heartbeat regular. He said, how am I? And Brian thought, that startled me. For I was after my record of his heartbeat, and I hadn't given any thought to potential pathology. I said it looked good to me. He stood up and said, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And Brian said, thank you for letting me take your portrait. Now, Duchamp knew that O'Doherty had been a doctor and asked that he sign the self-portrait. And Duchamp wanted him to sign it, Brian O'Doherty, M.D. And Brian recalls, I wasn't going to let him participate in the creation. After all, that would have been a reappropriation with the MD on the end there through its own initials. His heart had done its work. It was as simple as that. Had O'Doherty simply taken Duchamp's portrait, or had he done something more? Had he gathered the necessary materials with which to build his android, one that could assume Duchamp's identity, the feeling of his being, and his sense of consciousness? Here we need to turn our attention to Dr. O'Doherty. I can't help thinking of the fictitious Edison gathering all the information necessary to replace Alicia Clary with the machine of his making. Come on in. Also contributing to my image of the mad scientist working in his laboratory are two figures from Fritz Lang's classic film, Metropolis. C.A. Rotwang, the inventor of the human machine, Maria, and Grote, the supervisor of the heart machine. the the very machine that ran the city of Metropolis, controlling the flow of electricity into that city. The three in my mind are melded into one science fiction-like figure, Dr. O'Doherty, who gathered the necessary data and would then set out to transform it into his machine, one under his control. Now, medical history does little to record that it was Dr. O'Doherty whose portrait of Marcel Duchamp represents the earliest uh, successful transplant of a mechanized heartbeat. (laughs) History tends to dwell on later events, such as Christian Barnard's uh, uh, heart transplant and the Jarvis 7 coming later. 
Uh, but here is our medical pioneer right before us. Uh, I guess somebody else who's uh, in the same period who interestingly, and actually did make an artificial machine. Anybody remember the ventriloquist Paul Winchell, Jerry Mahoney? In 1963, Paul Winchell made an artificial heart machine himself. Yeah, this has sort of slipped through the, under the rug of history. Uh, okay, Duchamp's heartbeat would become his portrait. Dr. Duchamp's heart transplant, in contradistinction performed as later within the realm of medical scientific community, whose products can be understood to elucidate absolute truth, subscribing to absolute method, signals an attachment to this author's maintenance of mystery over science. In each of the 16 parts that make up the portrait of Marcel Duchamp, we see him represented by a heartbeat. Uh, The uncut cardiogram, which you just saw, and then uh, mounted cardio, uh, the mounted, uh, excuse me, this is over here, mounted cardiogram right here, uh, record the performative aspect of the portrait while providing clinical data. Each of the three boxes in the portrait, here we have three leads done in 1966, and there are two others that were done a year later in 1967, uh, resting heartbeat and slow heartbeat, Uh, with their kinetic portrayal of his heartbeat challenges us to believe that we are witnessing that heartbeat and that somewhere nearby Duchamp is alive. With portrait, Duchamp did not want a record of a heartbeat, but a heartbeat, the very signature of life, and that posed a problem, one for the artist and not the medical doctor. He wanted to animate, to bring to life the images produced by the first three leads of the electrocardiogram. And here we see uh, the first lead here, uh, and second and third leads, and then the auxiliary vector leads from the, from the legs down on the, on the bottom. How to create a kinetic image of the heartbeat like that seen on an oscilloscope was the problem. Here is where the artist took over. And the solution for his, uh, the first of his kinetic boxes, the one we see on the wall here, three leads, coming when O'Doherty saw an advertising sign for beer in a bar window. Obviously impossible to see in the size here, but here we have a lovely beer sign, the kind with the waterfall that looks like the water is actually falling here, and it's an illusion that uh, is very much like, uh, like what we have here. Okay. It's bouncing dot of light produced by rotating a cylinder sleeve with a vertical slit operating behind a stationary front panel. Creates the illusion both in the sign and in O'Doherty's solution. In this design of his machine, a carpenter's level, spirit level, with three windows, that he found in a Canal Street shop would serve as a stationary front panel. On each of the windows, he etched one of the three leads, first, second, and third, uh, in proper sequence, linked by a calm horizontal line, as we see going on uh, between between, uh, each of those uh, circular windows. 
Inside the box on which the spirit level is mounted is a cylindrical motor-driven sleeve that, that turns in this direction, painted black, and then has slots on it so that light can come through and behind the etched image of the, of the heartbeat creates the illusion of the, uh, of the oscilloscope. Okay. Um, what, uh, what O'Doherty saw is that the heart began to beat, inscribing perfectly the course traced by Duchamp's heart. And she said, I had him alive and in my hand. The heart not only began to beat, but O'Doherty took control of it. The trajectory, and I think this is a very interesting part about this piece, of the image of, of uh, Duchamp's heartbeat travels from right to left instead of the way an EKG machine works or an oscilloscope works, where our, believe me, I've been hooked up to these things the last few weeks, and uh, they uh, move from left to right, and it's time moving forward. Brian has reversed time. He's taken control of the pattern of Duchamp's heartbeat. He's taken control of the pattern of Duchamp's life. And he's backing him up. He's extending his life through this act. Okay? Traveling from right to left, it reverses Duchamp's life cycle. Time travels backwards. O'Doherty was in control. And like Grote, he could dictate the direction and pace of his heart machine. Duchamp's heartbeat. In 1966, Duchamp, uh, O'Doherty had an exhibition at the Byron Gallery in New York City. Uh, among the works shown were the portrait of Marcel Duchamp, mounted cardiogram, and the first of the boxes here, three leads. Reviewing the show for Art Forum, Dennis Adrian was quick to recognize a key ingredient in the artist's intention calling to our attention the question of Duchamp's mortality. Later in the same review, he praises O'Doherty for moving the portrayal of Duchamp beyond likeness. In its place, the heartbeat acts, and I quote, without interpretive interferences that inevitably cloud the truth of any ordinary portrait. The portrait of Marcel Duchamp breaks new ground, Accurate monitoring of the numerous, highly specific bodily functions of any notable person now offers the artist the fulfillment of an oft-expressed dream, that of getting inside the sitter. Well, Marcel Duchamp also attended that exhibition and reportedly spent considerable time contemplating portrait with a special, uh, special attention to the three leads piece. Elsewhere, I have written about Duchamp's interest in automatons, including his own representation as such. Here I am left with the sense that he easily recognized and was likely amused at being transformed into a machine, an automaton. O'Doherty observed uh, Duchamp as he was watching the piece. He said, he spent much time <coughs> looking at his heartbeat, and it gave Brian, an eerie feeling. Looking at him, look at his heartbeat, that would, which would survive him. However, something interesting, known only to Duchamp, 
was that he carried a small piece of paper folded in his pocket. Colonel, you participated in the last time I spoke here, and I'm going to ask you to do it again. And would you please tell the audience what was on that piece of paper? And besides, it is always the others who die. <laughs> so there he is, standing in front of Duchamp, the portrait of himself, and with this wonderful thing that becomes his epitaph that is engraved on his tombstone. Okay. Well, the text of the notes reads at odds with the statement regarding the death of the artist in his work. Was he attempting, <coughs> was he exempting himself from the fate he prescribed for others? And, did, and had Odority trumped him, imposing the burden of immortality upon him? The piece clearly made an impression on Duchamp. According to Brian, after that, when he encountered Barbara Novak on the street, he would inquire, often quite anxiously, is it still beating? <laughs> the following year, with a portrait of Marcel Duchamp, uh, uh, leads uh, number one, slow heartbeat and resting heartbeat, Odority continued his efforts at transforming Duchamp into a living masterpiece one with an infinite lifespan. And I quote from Brian, after all, his heartbeat was ready-made, and that I had in an iconic, uh, indeed scathing refutation of his own practice, denoted it as an artwork. More than that, I could make him live out several lifetimes, slowing the heartbeat to seven beats a minute, which I did, therefore giving him an extended life before he used up his time, what uh, Joseph Mashek uh, said, his earthly allotment of heartbeats. And after his death, I did calculate uh, on the basis of that cardiogram how many, how many times his heart had beaten, depending upon the, frequently, the, the frequency of pulse chosen. I could make him live indefinitely. Accompanying the boxes are 13 other components. Two are flip books, small books and Probably some of you have played with these at different times in your life. And you can either, depending if you flip it this way or flip it this way, you can have the heart beat moving forward or backwards. So it's another way of, of being able to control the, uh, the attitude of the, of the heart itself. Uh, let's see. So. Okay. A group of studies done in 1966 and 67 completes the portrait. Uh, study four, uh, lead one, mounting increments over here on this side, actually serve as ends in themselves in addition to being studies. With this study, Odority ranged 20 images in four registers uh, that suggest an appropriation of a 19th century mathematical theory called the Dedekind Cut, itself appropriated decades earlier by Duchamp as a means for creating distinct plane fields. In uh, mounting increments here, each circle suggests a lens, uh, recalling the portrait here with three leads, uh, through which we can witness the segmented heartbeat portrayed in a manner reminiscent of Marais' 
uh, chronographic photography. Uh, Marais and Mybridge are two very important photographers at the end of the 19th century whose efforts precede slightly the development of the motion picture, and they did time sequence photography, which stills the individual image, but we see it sequentially, much the same manner that we see the heartbeat here. Slowed by the process of cutting, each segment is then delayed on its own plane field, like that Dedekind cut that I just mentioned, capable of generating the next successive field or moving into an infinite lifespan. O'Doherty had assumed control of Duchamp's heartbeat, rupturing a continuous linear pattern of progression, making it function in a manner of his choosing. Over 40 years after his death, Duchamp's heartbeat continues under O'Doherty's direction. In an interesting way, Portrait of Marcel Duchamp offers his insight into understanding his persistent, ghostly presence, having been transformed into a living masterpiece, one that parodies Hesse's complaint while trumping Duchamp's assertion that works of art have short uh, and relatively fixed lifespans. O'Doherty seems to have had it right when he questioned Duchamp's single-mindedness, authored in the aforementioned statement about the life of a work of art. A study of his statements made over the course of times reveal contradictions in his thinking. However, O'Doherty was not about to let him off the hook. With portrait, aspects of Duchamp's own uh, are turned on him, mechanomorphing, the transformation from organic to the mechanical being most apparent. Inferences uh, to Duchamp's use of boxes are readily seen as well. The heartbeat serves as a ready-made ingredient which Duchamp appropriate, excuse me, which Adority appropriated, making the artist into a form of his signature contribution to 20th century art, a ready-made, however remade. Odority claimed, quote, by exhibiting that work in a gallery a muse and museum, his theory of the death of artworks ran into his own heartbeat. If he insisted that my artwork, his heartbeat was losing aesthetic value by the second as it hung on the wall on its way to becoming an artifact, an antique for the future, would his theory suffer a little death? It was certainly a risk that was my aim. Portrait takes over after Duchamp's death, defying that death and by implication, the death of a work of art. Brian O'Doherty has constructed a bridge between the corporeal and the spiritual worlds. His spirit level, a doublon tendre, on the one hand, the tool appropriated, and on the other, a Duchamp who Don Edis et al. writing in the last paragraph of the book Marcel Duchamp concludes as having haunted the second half of the 20th century. Shortly after Duchamp's death, Man Ray declared his heart obeyed him and stopped, or did it? Its beat is very visible in Dr. O'Doherty's heart machine.